You know that thing where you're at a bar and there's a lot of people around and some of them are probably pretty interesting and you're drinking, but you're alone and you don't know any of those people, so instead of talking to them, you just ignore them and bury yourself in your phone? Me too. Why is that? Welcome to the Fingers Podcast. <laughs> Welcome. I'm your host, Dave. Sorry, but I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, also, I'm Dave Infante, also known as Dinfante, also known as DJ Disappoint Your Parents, and I'm coming at you from Fingers Headquarters here in Charleston, South Carolina. Today, I've got an interview with Joe Kahane who is the author of a new book called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Joe is actually an old editor of mine. We worked together on some features at Thrillist, and then again when he was editing at Medium, back when it was being operated as a publication and hadn't yet regressed into a platform for venture capitalists to blog about growth hacking or whatever. Although I guess most of that happens on Substack these days anyway. Hmm. Anyway. In this interview, Joe and I spoke at length about The Power of Strangers. Uh, it's a fantastic book, one that combines thorough research with narrative first-person reporting, uh, all in service of answering a deceptively simple question, which is, if scientists know that talking to strangers is good for us, and they do, neurologically and physiologically speaking at least, then why don't we all do more of it? I just recently finished The Power of Strangers, and I think that Joe answered that question with humor and wit and humility and all that good shit. And I'm not just saying that because I know him. Joe also came up with a brilliant way of describing the antisocial posture we all assume when we're alone at a bar scrolling through our phones. Lowercase r's. I really liked that. Good one, Joe. Without further ado, here's the Fingers interview with Joe Kahane, writer, journalist, and author of The Power of Strangers. Okay, Joe Kane, uh, welcome on the Fingers Podcast. How you doing, buddy? Good, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Where are you joining us from? Uh, I am in my office in Brooklyn. I rent an office space from an arts nonprofit that is kicking me out on Friday. You're so getting, you're getting evicted. the last glimpse of my palatial office. <laughs> yeah, they're kicking me out. Where's next on the on the destination? I don't know. Do you know anybody? I don't want to pay that much money for it. I need a door that closes. Um, I don't want to work at a WeWork because they creep me out and they they strike me as pretentious and excessive uh, and there's no privacy. So yeah, I'm just kind of trawling around. I got to go tour tour space today, see if I can find something. But. Well, wait a second. I feel like this is germane to the to the conversation of the day. I mean, WeWorks are full of strangers. Why don't you know? You said you want privacy. What's the what's the rub? Yeah, I would like to be able to control my exposure to a certain degree. So when you work at a WeWork, like uh, <laughs> you're in a glass box, you have no privacy. Like you can be seen. And I've worked in one of those things before, and I found it very distracting that you're like visible to everyone who walks by. Have you ever been in one of those? Yeah, I've I've toured them a couple of times. In in the WeWork, you're the chimpanzee. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. It's kind of like there is this, no howdy door. It's like a zoo for for failing um, owner operated LLCs. Um, <laughs> That's right. Like, 
but uh, but I yeah, I just like I, I've done it before. I don't want to do it again. I found them so pretentious and so unbearable with all like the self help sloganeering and the forced community and stuff. Um, I love community. Obviously, I'm a champion of community and a champion of talking to people you don't know. But when it's that forced and that pretentious, I bristle at it. Um, so the place I work now, it's like it's an arts nonprofit. So there's like an opera singer who practices in the studio behind me. There's a film editor next door who I've become really good friends with. Like, I love that where you just kind of find your, you know, you kind of socialize on your own, but you're not being like pressed to do it all the time. You'd rather be amongst failing artists rather than failing LLCs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no question. Those are better no people. <laughs> uh, Joe Kane, author of The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Thanks for coming on the pod. Joe, you just had a book come out. I just uh, read the title off for someone who's never heard of this book, and hopefully they have because it's been getting good reviews and it's been generating a little social media chatter. You had an excerpt in The Atlantic, very cool. For someone who's never heard of this book, what's the logline? Yeah, it's a book that asks why we don't talk to strangers, um, what happens when we do, and how we can get good at it. So that's the three-point pitch, basically. Um, I started because I realized you know, I had a, an amazing conversation with a cab driver one night. And it kind of occurred to me after that, like, I used to do this more. I used to talk to strangers more. And for some reason, without really choosing to do it, I just stopped doing it. Like, I stopped talking to people in bars. I stopped, you know, just kind of like chatting with the barista or whatever, which I never did like habitually, but I did it enough to enjoy it and to find it as like a source of interest. And, you know, sometimes it could be poignant. Sometimes it could be hilarious. Sometimes it was just a good way to pass the time. Um, But I had stopped and I hadn't chosen to stop. And I was wondering, like, what were the forces at work that made me stop? talking to people I didn't know really like outside of a work context. Cause I talk to people I don't know all the time for work. Um, and for me, it was like twofold on one hand, I had a young kid and I had a demanding job. So I was just tired and stretched thin, and I didn't hang out like as much as I used to. I didn't have as much time to just hang around the city. And so that put a real dent into my ability to socialize. Uh, and the other thing was just having the phone. So having an iPhone meant that on the rare occasion I did go into a bar, I could just like look at Twitter and feel my soul rot. Um, and do that for an hour and then leave without talking to anyone, which is like a really grim thing to do, partly because social media is just, it just makes you feel bad about the world and about yourself, but also because like I'm surrounded by people I don't know. And, you know, I'm sure they have good stories and I'm sure they're good company. And I'm just like, I get my head down like an idiot. You have an incredible line in the book that speaks directly about being in the bar, hunched over your phone, you describe people as lowercase R's. Right. It's like a whole row phones. of them. You walk into a bar and it's like, everyone's just kind of like, um, <laughs> and I felt really bad about that. Cause I really did have a lot of great experiences. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but some chance encounters I've had with strangers have, have changed my life. They've like charted a course for me. Um, a lot of what I've done and what I've kind of attained has been the result of random interactions with people. So, you know, I wanted to solve it for myself and I wanted to try to rebuild myself as a social animal. I wanted to start from zero, almost like I was running a marathon or something. Um, and you can't run a marathon by getting up and running a marathon. You have to like get off your ass and like go for a walk first. So I wanted to kind of like replicate that training process, but for socializing, you know, after years of withdrawing because of technology, you know, because of COVID recently, like we've all kind of withdrawn from the world. And I think our social skills have gotten rusty. So I wanted to understand, I wanted to get really good at it. I wanted to get better at it, but I also wanted to understand every moving part of these interactions from like the things that keep us from talking to strangers to the actual interaction itself. Like, how does it work? What's going through your head? What's happening on almost like a biochemical level when you talk to someone you don't know. And then I went deep into the history too, to find some instances where there were like turning points in human civilization that were the result of figuring out ways to talk to strangers and communicate with strangers. Um, it's a lot of stuff. Hopefully I made it like entertaining enough. You went extremely deep 
in the book. One of the things I loved about the book, and for the people who don't know, Joe is used to, I used to write for Joe every once in a while. He'd let me uh, write a feature for him. Um, but you recently moved into, but this is your first book. You're working on another book project. I don't know if we're talking about that yet, but you went really deep in Power of Strangers in a way that obviously you can't do uh, in magazine form. What was that shift like for you, like from a tactical perspective? Was that freeing? Was that like paralyzing to have that breadth like at your disposal? Yeah, the process was great. So you get a little more time to do it, but it's a lot more work. But the thing that I really enjoyed about it was, you know, you would find something. So I would find a psychology paper, right? And so number one, you're going to learn to read that stuff, which is really hard. Um, reading psychology papers, sociology papers, all these academic things. Like that was a challenge in itself. I mean, that shit's impenetrable. Oh, it's a, it's a whole other language and it's exclusionary. You know, that's the point of it. Um, in many ways is to exclude people who are not of that group, uh, which is like a whole other thing, but you learn to read that irony, man. I know (laughs) this stuff drives me crazy. Um, but you, you learn to read these things and you find, you know, the paper is about what the paper is about. And so you kind of internalize that. You think about that, but there's a reference to something else in it. And you're like, okay, well, I'll go, I'll check that thing out. And then think that thing has a reference to something else in it. So there's a certain amount of faith that goes into the process because you have to believe that that um, journey will end up somewhere fruitful for you. You know, if I just keep pulling these strings and following these dark alleys and stuff, like I'm going to end up somewhere really interesting. But it really was like, you know, you have to be kind of stupid. This is the thing that I talk about with, with our mutual friend, Kevin Alexander, who's a great writer, is you do have to be kind of stupid to write a book, right? You have to be kind of stupid and thinking that people are going to care about what you care about, what you're talking about. But you also have to have this kind of blind faith that this enormous amount of work is going to amount to something, especially if you're doing it the way I did it, which was just, I'm going to, I'm going to find everything I can find. I'm going to go through tons of like anthropological field studies to find out how traditional societies dealt with strangers. I'm going to read all the holy books to see what the holy books say about strangers. I'm going to read all these psychology papers, all these sociology papers. I'm going to talk to all these people. I'm going to talk to a million strangers in the street and see how these go. And I'm going to try to explain why such a simple thing as talking to a stranger can be so complicated from all these different angles, philosophy, you know, all these different stuff. But you get to like, you, you just find like a little nub of something and you're like, all right, I'm going to go check that out. And then you go check it out and it leads to something else and it leads to something else. Like the research process was similar to, you know, the, the best analogy I can come up with is when I was a teenager, I was really into hip hop in the nineties. And all those hip hop songs in the nineties were based on like 1960s jazz tracks. Like a lot of the sure, they're references. Yep. Yeah. But they were coming yep. out of balloon out records, Lou Donaldson records and Grant Green records and all this stuff. And so I would listen to like tribe call quest or the beastie boys or something. And I loved the samples that I was hearing. And so I would chase down the samples. And at that point you didn't have Spotify. So it involved going to a lot of record stores and trying to find like the guitar sample from a tribe called quest song. And that would right. be a Grant Green record. And then I'd be like, Grant Green's amazing. I love this stuff. He plays, with Sonny Clark, the piano player. Now I'm going to go find some Sonny Clark. But it was that sort of like just kind of free associative. And it's a you were functioning as your own algorithm at that point. Yeah, it's great. It's just like following your curiosity and, and seeing what connects to what else, and and you discover whole worlds that way. And I'm you know I'm a, a huge jazz fan now, but that's the result of like chasing down samples from rap records. Um, right. The research was kind of like that. It was you know a lot of people are much more directed in research. I was more omnivorous and more free associative. And, and I loved it. I loved just living in this thing for a couple of years, as opposed to just like focusing everything you have on a magazine story that you have a month to do, you know? Well, and you also, in a magazine store, you have to cut your, you have to close those doors instead of open them, right? Like you, you have a 3000 word 
upper ceiling, or if you're me, Joe has given me a 3000 word upper ceiling and I file 4,500 words (laughs) begrudgingly, but whatever the case may be, at some point you have to cut off the story. Whereas if you're writing a book, you control how long the book is. The only deadline you have is the one to file the manuscript, right? There's, there's so much more room to roam. Yeah. You, you can just, you don't have to make, you're right. Closing doors is a really good way to put it. When you, when you're on a deadline for a magazine story or a newspaper story, you have to look at something and make a snap judgment and say, is this worth looking into? given the time I have. And oftentimes it's not, you, you can't go down those blind alleys. So a book project like this is super fun because you could just indulge your curiosity to the nth degree every step of the way. And you do find this amazing stuff. Like I lucked into so much great stuff in this book that would never have happened if I was under the gun or if I wasn't willing to take the chance of being like, oh, I'll call this guy. Like maybe this guy is something. And that guy, like he knows somebody who no one's ever heard of and you should go talk to that guy. And then lo and behold, it ends up being a linchpin of the whole project. Uh, yeah. It was great. I could, I, I never want to do anything else. I love doing it. It was great. The research I think is important. And you know, for listeners who haven't picked up the book yet, highly recommend you do. I bought it with my own money. I'll say Joe That's did it. not send me a copy. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck, Joe? But I, mean, I, I bought it. send you a PDF. But I'm not going to yeah. send you a real copy. <laughs> yeah. That's the money. new move, right? Is all the publicists are like, do you want a digital copy? He's like, no, so, I don't want to so sit in my front of my computer for a 400-word book. What are you talking about? They're so cheap. But uh, worth all the, I think it was $28 worth, every single one of them. Highly recommend people pick it up. But for those who don't, Joe described, I think, pretty well the sort of arc of the story and looking into why strangers, why it's important to talk to strangers, why we don't, et cetera, et cetera, what the benefits are. But the research is really important. And one of the things I, I was struck with when I was reading the book is that you yourself wound up as a stranger in academic circles when you were trying to talk to the people who wrote these these papers that you know form the bedrock of like the research that you incorporate in the book what was it like trying to like not be peers with anthropologists and sociologists but try to understand enough of their vocabulary and try to insinuate yourself with them enough to get good material out of them i mean that's you kind of had to navigate some of those spaces as a outsider yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the thing with reporting generally anyways, is that you, you often find yourself asking stupid questions and you have to be completely comfortable asking howlingly stupid questions because you just don't know anything, you know, like you are kind of a fool going into this. Academics are interesting because they are hyper-specialized um, and a lot of them, a kind way to put it is to say they lack social graces. Um, they can be skittish. They can be uncommunicative. They can bristle easily. There's a lot of that stuff you have to deal with. And they've devoted their lives and every ounce of their energy to like a small thing that in the grand scheme of things, very few people actually care about. And, you know, and I think that's really admirable, but it also makes them kind of <laughs> insecure of feeling sort of unappreciative and, and resentful. So you had to navigate that stuff. But, you know, a lot of what I had to do to talk to them, to connect with them is what you have to do to connect with strangers in real life, which is really listen to what they're saying. Don't talk over them. Don't editorialize. Don't judge them. Don't be dismissive. Don't be contemptuous. Um, be respectful. Be humble ask real questions, open-ended questions. Um, And when you do that, when you show a real interest in somebody, a real curiosity in someone, um, they do tend to respond. They feel, you know, safe. I think everyone's a little anxious about the media um, because there there are, frankly, a lot of kind of disreputable reporters. Not us. Everybody else. Not not you and me. They worry that their their work of their life is going to be misrepresented. So you have to reassure them. You have to show them that you are going to be a responsible steward of the work that they spend all their time on. And then once you do, like they, people really, and this is, this, this applies in the world too. And you know, this from, from reporting, um, people really do appreciate it when you're interested, right? You can't fake interest. You have to be really interested. And when you're really interested and you show that you're 
acquiring some of what they're saying and that you're asking questions and that you're enthusiastic about it, the world opens itself to you. And I think that applies to research for sure. Um, Because again, it can be tricky to get people to really talk to you. But out in the world, it's the same way. I mean, a big part of the book was just, like I said, learning to talk to strangers and then gathering all these techniques from experts and communications experts and psychologists and all this stuff and applying them out in the world, just trying to like chat up random people and see where it goes and see what worked and what didn't work. And, And that was the skill there. It's like, you notice something you show that you're not a threat. You show that you're curious and respectful and that you're genuinely interested. And um, people are really flattered by that. And uh, and you can have real conversations with total strangers that can be, you know, like I said, they can be really funny. They can be informative. They can be poignant. They can be strange. All these things. You just never know what you're going to get. But you do have to be open and you do have to be curious and you do have to be respectful. One of the things that I think is an interesting distinction that you make in the book, and I'd like to draw out a little here, is that you know, there's a difference between sort of a like substantive and engaged conversation and an extractive one. Right. And so one of the things that you kind of, you, you discuss uh, at various points throughout power of strangers is, you know, your background as a journalist, you have learned and you've been trained and you've trained yourself over the years to go into a conversation uh, with an agenda, right? You, you need people to say certain things, not to frame them up in terms of like getting gotcha questions, but like you need this, this and that piece of information and you want to get that done in a 30 minute call. And if you can get it done quicker, great. You know, you can be on to the next thing. And you were at, you were in the UK, I think you, you know, cause in the book or for the book, you traveled around to various seminars and workshops that people around the world do to teach random rank and file civilians how to talk to strangers, how to get better at talking to strangers. You attended some of these workshops and at one of them, you, uh, you kind of tripped yourself up, right? Like you, in the book, you describe, you know, sort of getting all the questions done, getting the answers you needed, and then trotting back to the to the educator like a fe- with a pheasant in your mouth, like a hound dog, being proud of yourself. And, and she turned you right back around. Tell me the difference between kind of engaging and absorbing conversations and just doing sort of extraction, you know, discussion extraction or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's like a question of control <clears throat> in a way. So when you're in a journalistic context, there's goods that you need to get right? You have limited time. You have to get what you have to get in order to get your story. So that means like, you know, having an idea of what you're looking for going into it, trying to find it. Um, If they say it in a way that's like inelegant, rephrasing the question so they give you a better quote, like it's very active and you are, if you're a good interviewer, you're in control of the process. You have to be a little open and like allow yourself surprise and things like that. But for the most part, like, you know, it's, it's a leaning forward kind of, kind of conversation. And so, you know, I took a class, like you said, in London from this woman, Georgie Nightingale, who's like a communications guru, who's very talented and brilliant um, for three days to learn to talk to strangers. It was me and like a bunch of like deeply introverted people. And they they saw that they were bad at this and they saw the potential benefit of like learning to be social. So they wanted to learn how to do it. And so Georgie was like the teacher. And one of the exercises was it's a listening exercise. It's an exercise about relinquishing control. It's supposed to be an exercise about relinquishing control of a conversation. So your conversational partner, one of the other students says something about their day. Like I like to, I make tea at nine o'clock in the morning and you're supposed to just ask open questions about making tea and let them get to something that tells you more about themselves without like coming up with a theory and being like, let me run this by you for why you really like tea uh, and like pulling it out of them. Right. 
and it's it's an exercise to be like what kind of tea do you like like have you always had tea did you did your parents make so like just open like open-ended you know who what where when why questions you're supposed to just keep asking those and just let the conversation go where it wants to go to where she wants to take it but me coming from the background i come from i like dug in and she was like, you know, I really like, I really like like my moment of making tea. And in five moves, I had like an existential statement out of her about like what the tea represents. And I was just like, there it is. Like, got it. Took me like five minutes to get this. And then, yeah, I went back to the teacher. I was like, here's the deal. Here's what I got. And uh, she was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's great. That's true, it seems. But um, I was watching it. You were like leaning over and interrogating her. She was like, that was the fucking squeeze on this woman. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes down to control. And for me, like, it's hard to not have control of a conversation. It's hard not to look for opportunities to control or steer the conversation. And the trick I found, and this has been, you know, found in tons of studies that have been replicated throughout the world with all different types of people. That's the way to do it is to let the other person lead and to get comfortable with the fact that you don't know where this is going to go. Right? Like don't look for something that you want to talk about, which we all do. Like you're at a party and someone's like, yada, yada, yada. And you're like, boring, boring, boring. Oh, they talked about baseball. I want to talk about baseball. And then you like take over the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't make it about yourself. Don't editorialize. Don't try to solve their problems. Don't judge. Don't interrupt. Like make eye contact, actually listen and actually ask questions and then just let it go. There is like a passivity to it. Um, to the art of talking to strangers that I was fundamentally uncomfortable with and learning to do it was really difficult. And I would imagine that it's really difficult for a lot of people to relinquish control. And this is actually kind of interesting because of all the, the you know, the professors I spoke to, they all teach too, they all teach in college. And every single one of them would remark on how hard it seems for their students to talk to each other. Like their social skills just are not there. They're really uncomfortable with in-person interaction. And the kind of working hypothesis for why that is, is tied to technology. I think it's probably complicated, more complicated than that. But when you increasingly interact with the world through technology, you have a lot of control over the interactions you have. So if you te- if you and me are texting, which we you know, obviously do all the time, if you say something, I can like take as long as I want to come up with like the right response to it. Right. I don't, I'm not looking at you. Like I can go for a walk or something and I can reply. You workshop a bunch of jokes with Kevin and you try to figure out which <laughs> right. is funniest. Yeah, yeah. You're AB testing your text. <laughs> um, and emails the same way. Like you, you don't have to respond quickly. You're not in the presence of the other person. So the belief with like young people struggling with in-person communication is that it's because they just don't do it that much and they don't have the skills there necessarily. And so it's it's daunting um, and they need to kind of rebuild those skills in order to do it. But I just thought that was really interesting. You know, the loss of control and being vulnerable. And I don't mean necessarily mean emotionally vulnerable, but like there's a sense of vulnerability in taking that sort of approach to conversation where you're just letting the other person go, right? And you're not trying to step in. And it, it's really difficult to get used to. It's hard for me as a journalist. And I think it's hard for a lot of people who just live on technology. Technology was one of the things I wanted to ask you about this. And I know you have kind of a strained relationship with technology. You, for a while, I think your uh, your phone signature was sent from the inter- infernal device. Do you still have that fucking set up? No, I took it off. Yeah. Right. I'm tired. But another thing that I wanted to ask you about and that came up or that I was thinking about as I was reading is like to a lot of people, including me at times, I'm guilty of this. To a lot of people, this it might the next question might just be like, well, what's the point of having a conversation just for the sake of having a conversation? And 
that's not immediately apparent to someone who hasn't read your book. What are some of the benefits of just having a conversation, not trying to get information, not trying to get, you know, a controlled experience of consuming content on your terms? What are some of the upsides? You know, over the last 15 years or so, psychologists have finally started studying this. No one ever really studied this before. Um, And so there have been a raft of studies by a dozen or so psychologists at good places, publishing in good journals. Real journals. Where, yeah, where they were. (laughs) (laughs) But they they would send out study participants and they would just tell them to talk to strangers. So you'd have two groups. One is instructed to do what they always do. One is instructed to talk to strangers on mass transit and coffee shops, like in all these different venues. And they've done this in Chicago and London. They've done it in Istanbul and lots of places, Toronto. And overwhelmingly, they find that though people are really pessimistic about doing this, people think it's going to go badly. They think they're going to be rejected. People are going to be boring or they're going to think they're boring. Like they, people are really hung up about how badly this is going to go. Overwhelmingly, people have a positive experience. They find that people are much more receptive than they expect them to be. They find that the conversations tend to go much longer than they expected them to. They found that it came more naturally to them than they thought it did. Like it was easier than they thought it would be. It was more pleasant. And then there are kind of bigger effects. Like they would come away from these interactions feeling happy happier, feeling less lonely, feeling like a greater sense of belonging and well-being, feeling more connected to their communities, to the places where they live, even to like humanity at large. So even something as simple as like chatting with a barista, just having like a little conversation with a barista um, has a lot of benefits. And a lot of those benefits speak to a lot of the more seemingly intractable social and political issues we have today. Yeah. So you take like loneliness. So loneliness is off the charts. Like rates of loneliness have never been higher for as long as they've been studying loneliness. People are deeply lonely and loneliness is a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for society because it makes people politically crazy. It but also it's also like, like physiological like a, problem. Like yeah, people it's, have it's health as problems bad as, from loneliness. It's as bad as smoking. Yeah. It, it leads to cardiovascular problems. It will kill you. I mean, we are hyper social animals. And when we're not social, we are unhealthy. Like socializing is nutrition for us. It's food in a way. So though we interact with a lot of people kind of online, it's not, it's like, that's like low calorie interaction, right? It's not the same as, as interacting with people in person. It's like so eating cake do- mix, which like, you know, per, per, <laughs> per dollar is actually like the best way to consume calories, but the worst way to consume nutrition. Yeah, Right. It's like that. I was thinking of that joke in Idiocracy, how they started watering plants with Gatorade. You know, it's that sort of thing. It's just like, well, it has the, it has the, like the electrolytes that plants yeah, need. Right. Like, yes, there's moisture going into the soil, but like it's poisoning the plants. Um, and I'm not that, I don't think like social media is just pure poison, but it definitely can be. But all those things, you know, when you do have interactions, you feel less lonely. That addresses a serious problem that like people are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to address because it's becoming crippling for individuals and for society. People feeling like they belong to humanity and feel like they belong to their communities at a time of like transience and estrangement is really important. That sort of connection is really important coming out of COVID where we've all been in our little spider holes for so long that we're starved for connection and zoom is like pretty good, you know, like it's not bad. Um, but it's not as good as like being in the company of someone else. We are designed to be in the company of other humans. And so COVID can be, was, was a catastrophe for so many people because they lost that. It's like, if you lost 
a food group if all of a sudden you weren't allowed to eat protein for a year. Imagine what would happen to your body. I think that's what happened to our mental health in a lot of ways. It was very, very hard for people. So, you know, you can have all these benefits. These things can, you know, simple interactions to even more complex interactions, more meaningful conversations. They can really help us feel like we belong. We can feel connected. We can feel calmer. We can feel more reassured about, we can feel more optimistic, more trusting. There is enormous raft of benefits that are associated with this stuff. Um, even interacting with people from different groups, different political groups, different racial groups. Um, a lot of research is finding that that can alleviate prejudice. It can alleviate polarization. Listening to people, the feeling of being listened to can reduce extreme political beliefs. So you can, you know, in the book, I kind of go from easy to hard. And the hard part is like talking to people who, who have like worldviews that I completely disagree with. Um, that would be yep. very easy for me to like dismiss and dehumanize and be contemptuous of and learning to talk to them too and seeing the benefits of that sort of thing. So there, there are tremendous benefits. It's just, you know, the, that perception that it's going to go badly is so ingrained and so daunting to people that even the prospect of like talking to someone in a coffee shop or something is really intimidating. And I think it's more intimidating now coming out of COVID because our social skills are just so rusty. One of the things that you did not get into in the book that I'm curious if you explored at all is like the function of alcohol in all of this. Most of the time when I'm talking to strangers, I'm drunk. Now, since reading the book, I've more deliberately put into practice some of the stuff you've described, and it's actually gone pretty fucking well for the most part, and that's cool, but what uh, what's your take on, I mean, you mentioned bars, you mentioned like cocktail parties, but all of it's just kind of incidental in the book. What role does alcohol have, if any, in bringing strangers closer together? Yeah. Is that a kind of a false positive? Maybe a little bit of a gas on the fire that might cause a flare up? It's sort of like technology where there's there are good things, and there are bad things. It's like, you know, you have the smartphone and like all of a sudden you can call grandma whenever you want, but also someone can blow up a commuter train in like Spain. You know, <laughs> like there's, there's good and bad. It's a double edged sword. And I think booze, you can look at booze as a technology. The good stuff is that it's, it lowers your inhibitions. So, like I said, people are really intimidated by the prospect of talking to strangers. When your inhibitions are lowered, you're less anxious, you're more likely to like take a shot. And start talking to someone. And I'm obviously like, I love alcohol. Um, I love bars. I love places like that. I love parties. I love the, the, you know, that feeling of freedom, the feeling of experimentation and the feeling of almost travel that you get when you're just like, sure, I'll give this a shot. Like talk to this person. That's the good Mm -hmm. part that it lowers inhibitions. The bad part is that it lowers inhibitions. So you have like, (laughs) you become maybe a little less aware of the effect you're having on the person, you know, not you and me, but other people, Dave. Um, you might hold forth and not really listen to them. You might get, you know, you might get aggressive or something. I mean, there are definitely a lot of issues associated with alcohol that can make these conversations a real pain in the ass. But I always find like, you know, having one drink or something in a bar and just feeling a little loose and just chatting with people who also feel a little loose is great. Also, I'm a guy, so it's different for women, right? A lot of the You know, interestingly, a lot of the people I spoke to who study talking to strangers and who advocate for it were women, specifically introverts. And I asked a lot of them, like, how they do this without feeling threatened, you know, without without putting themselves in danger. Mm. And most Mm. of them said they don't do it in bars. If they're with a partner, if they're with like a husband or if they're with a friend, they'll be more likely to do it. But alone, signals could be misread. Someone they talk to could end up like being a little drunker than they expect and it could create a situation. So I definitely have like, I'm lucky that I don't, I don't really have to worry about that so much you know, circumstances are certainly different for people from different groups, but yeah, but I think it it can be, you know, it's like anything else used mindfully and carefully. It can be a great, a great way to 
start having these interactions. And and it's almost like it, it gives you proof of how well it can actually go. I've had amazing, you know, there's like, I don't know if you ever went to Barbez when you lived in Brooklyn, but it's my favorite bar in Brooklyn. And I went in there one day um, when I was doing this research and I was like, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm not going to read a book. I'm going to talk to the bartender. And so, you know, just how's the day going? People behaving themselves, like you have a little chat. And then um, I was like, so what are you, what are you interested in? Like, tell me something you're interested in. What's interesting to you at this point? And I got like a 15 minute lecture on the mating habits of the leopard slug. Uh, and it was amazing. And it was so funny. And I was like, wow, I did not. Leopard did slugs not, be fucking. <laughs> there's something involved like hanging upside down from a branch. And it was very complicated. Seemed like a real pain in the ass, but you know, to each, to each their own. <laughs> but to look at this guy, if I were to like make a snap judgment, I wouldn't have thought this, this was a man who's super in, into that sort of stuff. But he was like obsessed with like weird nature stuff. And uh, it was a great way to pass like a half an hour. And I had my drink and I went home and I learned something about the leopard slug. But yeah, doing that in bars, you just feel like you do collect like really interesting and, and funny experiences. And it does train you. And this is a really important point of the book. It trains you that people are not what they appear. And we know this intellectually, but I don't know if we know it viscerally, you know, if we've really internalized yep. it, that people are complicated. People are surprising. And if you allow them to surprise you, they will surprise you. Like it's always... It's always fun when someone who seems to be a certain type of person ends up being another kind of person or a hybrid kind of yeah. person because everybody is in a way, you know. And you describe in the book about how that sort of adds nuance and adds dimension to people that are otherwise sort of flat uh, stereotypes and that makes it makes people more able to connect with people from different groups, from outgroups, from, you know, people who don't look like them, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. It's, so that's like an important It's cool to know that everybody's different but everybody's similar enough that you can talk to them. Right. You know, like, I think that's it. I think no one is going to be the same. No one, no one hues to the stereotype, but no one is impossible to talk to. Or very few people are impossible to talk to. It's possible to communicate right. across these boundaries. You know, I was thinking of this, this wasn't in the book, but when I was at Medium, I commissioned a package of 50 interviews with 18 year olds uh, about like being on the cusp of adulthood in 20, this would have been 2018, 2019. Um, and what it was like and what they're, struggles were and what their hopes were and all this stuff. And the great takeaway of that project was that none of, you know, you kind of cast those sorts of things. You look for types in a way. It's not, not super sure. attractive to think, but, the, but you do. You have yeah. to. So we yeah. got like the, the kid from Wyoming who's like a rancher, right? So we are like, all right, we need the, we need the kid from Wyoming. And so we get this kid on the phone and he's great. And he's like, he loves to hunt and he like lives out in, you know, rural Wyoming and he hunts with his dad and his dad's a rancher and all this stuff. And you know, like, Smart, agreeable, good interview. But halfway through the interview, he says that, you know, sometimes he has to leave work early to go to dance, dance class. And the interviewer was right. just like, wait, what's dance class? And he was like, oh, ballet. I take ballet. And I love that. I Like, that's a great example of what I so routinely find when I talk to people, which is you go into it and you're like, all right, this is a person like we do this. We stereotype, we generalize, we think in terms of groups. But you go in and you think that someone's going to be a certain way and then they end up being that and something completely different. And you just get this little tour of this individual that is both interesting, but like re really reassuring, really reassuring that you can meet someone who's that unique. And also you can have a conversation, even if you're very different. I love that idea. 
that experience is very humbling too, because you feel kind of like a dipshit. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, like when you just assume that the guy from Wyoming like skins, you know, elk and lifts ATVs over his head on the weekends, right. like, and he tells you that he takes ballet, you feel like a schmuck. Right. It's just like, yeah, you must. So you must spend your Saturdays pissing over a tractor. Am I correct? And he's like, no, I'm actually a very talented ballet dancer. <laughs> I'm a road scholar. <laughs> right. But I love that complexity and, and it is humbling and it's humbling to, it requires a certain amount of humility to allow for it. You know, to allow your worldview to be challenged in that way, it's it can be kind of disorienting. It can be, it can kind of challenge your identity and your sense of your place in the world. But it's just so interesting and it's so gratifying. And you know, having positive interactions with all these fascinating people gives you a much more optimistic reading on what humanity is. I talk about this a lot now, but there, there's I came up with this idea of like like what informs our perception of what humanity is. Mm. And I think increasingly it's the news and it's social media. Like as we withdraw from the physical world, which was exacerbated during COVID, but was underway, I think, before, our perception of humanity was colored by the news and by social media, which tend to be negative, right? The whole business of all of those things are negative things. And I, you know, I like the media. I am, I am of the media, but it definitely like plays up the negative stuff and ignores the positive stuff. So your perception, having consumed all that data, is that people are like pieces of shit. <laughs> you know, they're violent. They're xenophobic. They can't be reasoned with and the world is like collapsing and, and burning to the ground. That's because you're getting a very limited data set. When you're out in the world and you're talking to people, you get a different data set and that data set and the, the research backs this up that people overwhelmingly find that this goes much better than they thought. And they like the people a lot more than they thought, whether they're whatever gender they are, whatever race they are, whatever age they are, that gives you good data. And so I always joke that like I came out of 2019, uh, the only person I know who feels better about humanity. Um, because everyone else is just like, geez, wrap it up. Like this species is doomed, like irredeemable. <laughs> but I had like hundreds of interactions that were really pleasant. And you could just see that like everybody's trying, you know, people are interested people are interested, you know, it didn't always go like fantastically well, but it worked enough times that like, I think about those people. So I, you know, I read the news a lot. I'm on social media a lot. I definitely take in the bad stuff, but I feel like talking to strangers out in the wild, like I did. And like, I still do pretty regularly you know, to the extent I can do it safely stands as like a, like a, it checks against that sort of cynical or that sort of pessimism. And it keeps me from becoming too cynical, which I, is definitely my tendency. Like I tend to be pretty skeptical and pretty cynical. It definitely like corrects that in a way that makes me feel a little bit more hopeful, not like bleary eyed idealist, like blind idealism sort of way, not mm -hmm. in a hippie kind of sense, but in a way that I think that, you know, we do have it in us to fix these problems. We just have to actually do the work. We have to choose to do the work. One of the things that you talk about a lot in the book, a lot of this research is based on, or at least stems from, studies that scientists have done with primates, with, I think, chimps in particular, right? It's like, well, what was the other one? Bonobos? Bonobos. Yeah. yeah. And which ones, are the, which ones are the very violent ones? Chimps, right? Chimps, yeah. Chimps are nasty pieces of business. Yeah. <laughs> but bonobos are super nice and matriarchal. They have sort of more ideal civil interactions with one another. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the chimps. There's this concept of the howdy door, and it sort of sparked when you were talking about this idea of sort of how people interact on social media versus how people interact out in the world. There's actually in like chimp captivity when they're trying to introduce two chimps from different groups to one another, they use this structure called the howdy door. Tell me what the howdy door is. All right. So like you said earlier, I went pretty deep in the research and I wanted to... Do you think you went too deep? Do you think that they... it all came together in the book? <laughs> yeah. Thank God. It was like landing a, a jet on an aircraft carrier in a hurricane. <laughs> I wanted to go all the way back as far as I could. And so that meant looking at our genetic, our closest genetic 
ancestors, which are going to be chimpanzees and bonobos, the two apes, right? Like we share, I don't remember the exact number, but like 99% of our genetic material is identical to chimpanzees and bonobos. And so people always look at chimpanzees for insights into why humans are the way they are, but they never really look at bonobos, even though we are you know, genetically almost indistinguishable. So I wanted to understand how chimps and bonobos were with strangers. And chimps, as it turns out, are super hostile. They're really hostile to strangers. They're territorial. They're aggressive. They're, you know, they're cooperative within their groups, but in kind of a touchy transactional sort of way. Um, And so I, I wanted to find someone whose job it was to introduce chimpanzees to strangers. And so I found this woman, Joyce Cohen at Yerkes as a primate research institute in Georgia. And I called her and I was like, can you talk me through the process of introducing chimpanzees to each other? And the process, as it turns out, is super drawn out and agonizing. And you have to like take the two chimps and put them in separate rooms so they can kind of hear each other and that gets them used to the sounds. And then you have this door in the middle that they call the howdy door so they can kind of see each other. And sometimes they see each other and they go crazy and they need to separate them. Sometimes they're kind of mad and they kind of yell at each other, but they're not like, like upset so much by the, the existence of this other, the stranger. And so they leave them in there and they, they watch them very closely. Researchers watch them to make sure they're not freaking out. And then they just let them get closer. And over mm. time they open the door a crack so they can like touch fingers. And then sometimes they go berserk at that point. So they have to separate them again and then start over. But they very gradually get them closer to this howdy door. And then they open it a bit and then they open it more. And hopefully in time, this, the chimps can be together and they can forge an alliance. Everything is alliance based in chimp society. So. The thinking is if these two are friends, you can bring in a third one maybe, and then you can like form a new group that way. But at any point they can go berserk and attack each other because they're just really pretty keyed up, pretty neurotic about strangers. And I really, I like the howdy door. I use that as a metaphor for a group I spent time with that tried to teach Democrats and Republicans to talk to each other without like biting each other's faces off. Yeah. So the bonobo is different. The bonobo at a certain point we think was like, there's like this ur chimpanzee, right? And during the Ice Age, the Congo River, they, they live in present-day Congo, the Congo River dried up and a population of these like these early chimps crossed the riverbed and then just went to live on the other side. In time, the river came back, it severed these two populations. So one population of this one population of this chimpanzee is on the side of the with the mountain. The other is on the side with just like just forest, basically. The ones on the mountainside had to compete with gorillas for food because gorillas live in the mountains. The ones on the other side could just get food wherever they wanted to. So the thing that happened was because life was harder for the chimpanzees, they had to roam farther to get food, which meant that like males and females had to like be out on their own a lot more. Right. And the males would target the females and basically just like attack the females. Right. The females would be alone. They would be vulnerable. The male would go, would just basically go attack the female. Jumped and so, there. yeah. And so the, the species over time selected for aggression. And so chimpanzees became very aggressive. They became very male in that way. But bonobos, because food was all around them, the the females could stay together and they could form alliances that allowed them to repel male aggression. And it became like an upside down version of the chimpanzee society where it became matriarchal. And so the females had the power. They had the political power and they could select the males, right? And so they selected for docility and cooperation. And as a result, bonobos today are much less violent, much less xenophobic. There are even studies that show that they prefer to share food with strangers over their own friends because their friends are already there. You've already made the relationship. There's a benefit in like cre- expanding your, your social network. And they'll do that by sharing with strangers. 
and there's very little violence and it's completely different. So the idea is that bonobos are domesticated. They've domesticated themselves and there are very few animals in the world that have domesticated themselves and humans have domesticated themselves. So the argument I made is that like, yes, we have elements of chimp and bonobo in us, but we tend to overestimate the control of like our inner chimp and we tend to underestimate the influence of like the bonobo because we live, you know, we are like bonobos in a lot of ways. We can be really pro-social. We can be really friendly to strangers. We can be remarkably cooperative mm. and remarkably inclusive as long as we're not, we don't feel like we're under threat or we're competing for resources. When we do feel threatened and we feel we're, we're competing for resources, we tend to be more like chimps, right? We, we close ranks and we attack anyone who comes over the line. I'm glad that we started talking about resources a little bit, and I'm glad you you referenced the group that you spend time with, which is how I want to close the Braver Angels group. This this idea of competing for resources seems to be kind of central to the DBA, or I mean, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but absorbing the information that you've written about in the book and the research that you've referenced in the book, it seems that the scarcity of resources seems to be central to the deviation between chimpanzees and bonobos. And whether the scarcity is real or perceived, you know, or artificial or created by the actual environment, it has an effect on the way these groups or these uh, species like developed. Obviously, this shit's not one-to-one. You can't just say, like, this is the way it happened with chimps and bonobos. Therefore, this is the way it's going to happen with humans. We have many more inputs than chimps in the in the wild uh, or primates in the wild do. But it strikes me that scarcity of resources is a lot of what humans fucking freak out about. They freak out about it in terms of, I mean, we're seeing it right now with water, right? The Colorado River, they just put water stoppages on it. In Orlando, they're, like, I think doing a boil water or, uh, order. Resources, as they become more scarce, people turn within and turn, you know, try to keep what's theirs, right? That's the situation that we're in as humans, we'll say Americans, to limit it a little bit more. And in your research, you spent time with this workshop that is focused on putting political tribes together in a room and getting them to actually interact with one another in a way that's non-adversarial and more conversational. I want to hear from you, like you spent, what was that, 2018 that you spent time at Braver Angels? Probably 2019. So two years ago, obviously a lot has happened in the intervening time. I mean, you wrote and published the book and the, you know, the country is flirted with disaster in you know half a dozen ways since then what were your takeaways from braver angels i mean at the time you seemed pretty optimistic about the program but in the book towards the end you also complicate that takeaway because you you followed up with someone from braver angels tell me a little bit about braver angels and what it tells you as someone who's done this work about the outlook or the prospects for talking to strangers in this politically charged resource scarce environment or perceived scarce environment yeah, yeah. So that's the, you know, that's the big point <clears throat> of the book is that when we feel safe and we feel secure and we feel optimistic, we have an unbelievable, like an unmatched capacity to connect with people we don't know, connect with strangers, consider strangers fully human, parts of our groups, cooperate with them, collaborate with them, listen to them, all this stuff. Like when we feel comfortable, we're incredibly good at this. Mm. Like no other animal has this capacity. But when we're not comfortable, when we feel threatened, when we feel insecure, it's like a dial. A dial is turned and that's when people become xenophobic and that's when they dehumanize the people who are either their actual enemies or their perceived enemies. And the really tricky thing with people is that there can be real shortage, right? There could be like actual resource competition where there isn't enough food, there isn't enough water, there isn't enough land, whatever. And that definitely sets off conflict and it sets off dehumanization. But symbolic 
bollock threats. Squishier things like my identity, tradition, way of life. You're taking this from me. Yeah, but no one can define what it is. That motivates people as much as actual resource scarcity. Um, Sometimes more so. Like research has been done on xenophobia against immigrants. Mm. And you always think that it has something to do with like economic factors that when like times are hard, we tend to, we tend to hate immigrants, but it's not economic the case. anxiety. <laughs> yeah. But it's not what the case is. Like it's, it's symbolic threat. It's when people start to believe that these new people are going to take something ineffable away from them. Um, and it's always like way of life, our traditions, our way of life. But then you ask them what that is. And like, no one can answer that question because there's, you know, this stuff is protean. It's always changing. This tradition right. is like, not to quote Woody Allen, given his reputation, but it's the illusion of permanence, you know? <laughs> But so Braver Angels, you know, tries to tries to reduce that sense of threat and reduce that that dehumanization that happens with polarization and with this sorts of this sort of conflict. And what they do, it's it's a nonprofit. It was founded by Democrats and Republican political operatives, and they create conversations between Democrats and Republicans. So I went to their convention in St. Louis in 2019. And, you know, at first you had a bunch of Democrats and a bunch of Republicans. Now this is sort of self-selecting because they're people who are at least willing to entertain the possibility of talking to someone on the other side where there, we know there are a lot of people who would not entertain that, right? Who don't right. want anything. But these people are like, I, you know, I, I don't, my hopes aren't high, but I'll give it a shot. Like I'll, I'll take the ride. So Braver Angels creates this structure, which is very similar to the chimp facility that allows people to safely like forge alliances almost, right? Make connections. And the way they do it is by not leading with politics, not leading with the divisive stuff. Instead, like laying the groundwork before you can get to politics. And what that means is sitting down, explaining why you came to this thing, what your interest is, what your interest is, who you are, where you're from. And then people will make small talk and we deride small talk, but small talk is really important. They'll say, I have a dog. Oh, I have a dog. Like we, we both like dogs. That's like, okay, we like each other a little bit because of that. Like, you know, do you have any kids? Oh, I have kids. And so people naturally make these connections when you're talking to someone in person, you kind of look for some sort of commonality. And when you find that commonality, you get a little more comfortable with the person. The person defies your stereotype a little bit. They turn out to be maybe a little more complex than you might've given a member of the other tribe credit for. Um, maybe you like them. Maybe they're just pleasant. Maybe they're smart, smarter than you thought. You know, we really do think that people on the other side of political divides are like subhuman in a way that they're just following orders. They don't have free will. They don't have agency like we do. They're not snowflakes like we are. That's these special magical creatures. They're just like cogs in a machine. So when you do interact with people from the other side, it's really beneficial because it makes it more difficult for you to, to nurture that stereotype that they are less human than you are in a way. And you connect and you like each other and you're having kind of a good time. And so once you have that in place, then you can start talking about politics. But the way they do it isn't like, well, we both like dogs. What's your dog's name? Abortion. Discuss. You have to, when you broach an issue, you have to say what your belief is, but then you have to explain what got you there. So you work biography into it because we're, we love stories. Humans love stories. And so instead of, you know, if I said I'm, I support gun control and you were on the other side, you would just be like, well, you hate guns, right? Like that's going to be your response. If I say I support gun control because I had a friend killed when I was a kid or I live in a city where like guns from Maine and Georgia are constantly flooding into the city and innocent people are being killed, um, that's better, right? Like they'll, they'll be like, okay, I can see that. I can see like your experience is valid. And I'll say, why do you oppose gun control? They'll be like, well, I was raised, you know, hunting with my dad and I can see how that's a very personal issue for them. And then we can talk, right? 
But all that stuff has to happen first. You have to recognize each other as like humans, as full humans and complicated and likable um, individuals before you can have the conversation. And it's the exact opposite of the way we like prosecute political conversations in this country, which is like, it's like a cockfight. You know, you take the Democrat, Republican, you're like clapping together and like drop them in the ring and they tear each other to pieces. Um, <laughs> and then people make millions of dollars off of that fight and destroy the country in the process. Um, you have to very, you have to very carefully get them together and they have to be willing to do it. They have to be willing to be vulnerable and to allow their perception of the other to be challenged. But then when they do like magic happens. And so at the beginning of this thing, People were uneasy and they were skeptical and they didn't think it was going to work. At the end of it, it, it felt like summer camp. Like people were deliberately seeking out people from the other party to talk to them, to debate with them, to have lunch with them. It was really nice. And, you know, that's in Brave Angels will never cl claim that this is a magic bullet. It's basically the, the work that needs to be done in order to take the first step towards rebuilding the country's politics. Right. So you're not going to like, I, there's a story in the New York times that drove me fucking crazy where a guy was like, everyone says we have to go talk to the Trump supporters, but I went down and talked to two people and they didn't change their minds on gun control. So like, fuck this, they can't be talked to. Case like, closed. You're not going to go in front of two people and be like, here's what I think. And they're going to be like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Let's throw this whole thing away because like Johnny come lately, like came down, parachuted into our town and like made an argument. Yeah. It ran up on that ran up on two people in a fucking diner with like a recorder in their faces. Right, yeah. I think it's like, it's, you may be vastly overestimating how compelling a speaker you are and how effective an arguer you are, but it's not, that's not the goal. The goal isn't to fix everything overnight. The goal is to be able to tolerate the sight of one another and be able to work with one another on like anodyne things like zoning or like fixing potholes or, you know, like basic stuff, yeah. right? housekeeping stuff. And the way that we'll rebuild the politics of this country is going to be like, it's going to take 20 years if we're going to do it. And I don't know if we're going to do it, but you have to start with the little things and then you can, you can build trust and you can build liking and you can build little alliances. And in time you can start to get to the bigger stuff. Now, some of the bigger stuff has a clock attached to it. No question about it. But I think that's the way it has to happen. I think we need to relearn the fact that the people on the other side are people, they are complicated. Um, and we have to learn to cultivate the skills to talk to them. And that's the start. But there's almost nothing short of like actual violence that will jerk everything back to where you want it to be. It has to be, you know, it's going to be democratic. It's going to take a long time. But um, but I'm confident that this is the way to do it. Uh, the question is, I, I just don't know if people are, are willing to do it. You said at the beginning of the conversation, you came out of last year more optimistic than pretty much anyone else. You feel like uh, you actually have better feelings on the whole about others than you know, the rest of us do. Do you still feel optimistic? I mean, you got the book out there, you read the news every day, you still stick with that analysis or that that takeaway from this work? Yeah, I think I think we can. The question is, will we? I think it was, it was, it was really, op really heartening for me to really dig into like human capacity for cooperation with strangers. Um, it really is remarkable. It's incredibly powerful. And it's the reason why we have cities. And it's the reason why human civilization exists is because we have the ability to cooperate and communicate with strangers. Um, all our societies are societies of strangers, basically, you know, unless you live in a tiny little town, more than half of the global population lives in cities. Cities are full of strangers. So I think we can, I think we need to muster the discipline and the will to do it. And I don't know if, you know, the incentives are all to do the opposite thing than that. And I don't know if people will do it. I hope they will. I hope they read the book and they, they come away with it feeling a little heartened about like the potential that people people have. And I hope things get better. 
but yeah, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, again, my, my skepticism, my cynicism bubble up from time to time again, time to time. And we'll see, you know, what comes of it. But, but I, I remain reasonably hopeful. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Okay, that was the Fingers interview with Joe Kahane author of The Power of Strangers. Hopefully you found his perspective to be as fascinating as I did and do. If you'd like more of that, good news, it exists in a format that everyone is quite familiar with. You can buy The Power of Strangers, which is on bookstore shelves now, and ebooks and shit, I assume. I highly recommend it. You can also connect with Joe further by visiting his website, joecahane.net. Tell him I sent you, or don't. Whatever you're comfortable with, I guess. One last thanks to Joe for joining me on this edition of the Fingers Podcast. As a reminder, subscribers to the newsletter received this interview and podcast and all my stories directly into their inboxes as soon as I publish them. So if you'd like to become a subscriber yourself, you really should. It's free. Please head to fingers.substack.com and enter your email address. That's fingers.substack.com. And while you're at it, follow its.fingers on Instagram. That's its.fingers on Instagram. And that's all she wrote, or he wrote, I wrote, whatever. Signing off from the Finger Studio here in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm your editor, Dave Infante, reminding you, next time you're in a bar, try not to be a lowercase r. Bye bye